Good morning, Calvary. It is great to be back with you. My name is Ben Killerlane. I'm the pastor here. I spent the last two and a half weeks in Papua New Guinea. Uh, it was a long journey back home, but a delight to be back with you. Thankful for, uh, for Scott and for Lenny for filling the pulpit while I was gone. Actually, Danny filled it for him or for me. So I appreciate those guys stepping in for that. Uh, it is a cool expression as we've been working through the book of Acts for us as a church to be now kind of obeying that. As you look, there are elders that were commissioned in all the churches, and so that's what we're doing this morning, is we are wanting to affirm men and to eldership. Uh, this morning we have a couple of guys who've never served as elders with our church before, so we want to commission them to do that, lay hands on them, all parts of the book of Acts we will find, and, and so this morning we wanted to take the time to read from First Timothy and from Titus and from Acts so that you to see the biblical basis of eldership in a church, uh, to know that these guys are ordained for us from God, uh, and we have an incredible group of men who lead here, and so it is a huge blessing to serve amongst them. And so this morning, in a couple minutes, we will affirm them in that. So I'm going to take a couple minutes, pray for us, pray for our service, um, and then I'll introduce, then I'll excuse kids to kids club, and then we'll have a couple of testimonies, uh, just so you know what's coming ahead. Let me pray for us. Father, as we gather together this morning as a church, Father, we're mindful that people come here from a variety of situations. Father, inevitably some came from an easy, simple morning where everything went perfect, but I suspect that's not true for most of us. Uh, Father, we come together as a group of people who are hurting, who are broken, who are struggling, uh, whose kids don't always obey, whose marriages aren't always perfect, uh, and that's probably an understatement. But Father, we gather together to lift high the name of your Son, Jesus, who is alone sufficient. And so, Father, we gather together to lift high his name and to worship him, for he alone is good. And so, Father, we exalt the name of your Son this morning and ask, Father, that you would meet with us, that in your divine mercy you would make yourself known through your holy word, which we have read, and through the testimonies of men who are seeking after you and are seeking obedience to you. Father, I pray that this surface would honor you and would bring you glory. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to work through books of the Bible in this church, Father, that you'd bring us to greater and greater obedience to your Son. Father, we thank you that as a church we have the ability to support missionaries and we pray for them now, all of them. Father, that uh, men and women who are serving around the world to see tribes and people come to know you. And Father, we ask that you would bless them and that you would let them know that the churches are praying for them. Father, we lift them to you as well. God, we love you and are thankful for this gathering to remind us that we are not alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, in, in the history of Calvary, we have appointed men to serve as elders. Um, and part of being an elder is not that you are perfect, but it is that you recognize that Jesus is in charge. Um, we walk through the qualifications found in First Timothy and Titus. Uh, we're going to put two men up here to share their life story. I will be the first to tell you they're not perfect. Uh, I'd probably tell you that some of them have probably wronged you in the past. So if you look up and go, I don't like that guy. Well, we're all sinners, right? You're supposed to agree with me. <laughs> yes, we are all sinners. But we believe that God has anointed these men to serve amongst us, to shepherd us, to lead us. And you voted them in a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so we want to take that as a holy process. And so this morning, Aaron Carlson and Aaron Romain are both going to share their testimony of what Christ has done in their lives um, from a full perspective. Uh, it is important for you uh, to know your elders. Uh, one of the values of that is you can see guys and they'll probably share some things they've struggled with and who they are so that you might relate to them. So you would see that Pastors and elders are not special people who are above things, but that we're normal people who are seeking to obey God. And, and so we're putting the example before you, not of a perfect person, but as somebody who has trusted Christ. So to start us off, I want to invite Aaron Carlson to come and share his testimony with us this morning. Good morning. Ben nailed it. I'm just a common guy. Um, I'm a little nervous. Uh, my mouth's a little dry. 
sharing my testimony in front of uh, a congregation is this is the first time. Um, but I'm here to testify to the work that Christ has done in my life. Um, it's it's not about me; it's about Him, and that's the goal of my message that you would see that Christ is able to save all of us. Um, I was born into a Christian home. My parents brought me to church every Sunday uh, from as far back as I can remember. Uh, I remember in the third grade uh, seeing the other kids in my class uh, praying to accept Jesus into their heart. I had no idea what that meant. I, I didn't understand it at all, but I thought if they're doing it, I want to do it. And so I remember going home one night and saying, Jesus, will you come live in my heart? I can say that there wasn't a whole lot of change at that point in time as a third grader. Uh, I didn't really understand what had happened, but I firmly believe that uh, God began to work. Philippians 1.6 says that, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I believe that God started a good work in me at that point in time, his good work. Growing up, uh, I was a good kid from the outside. Uh, I got good grades. I didn't get in trouble, uh, at least not at school or, or church. Um, for the most part, I made decent choices, uh, but that was on the outside. On the inside, I was still very selfish. I was uh, a cheater and a liar when it suited me well. Um, and as a 10th grader, our youth group took a, a trip down to the Twin Cities. I grew up in central Minnesota. And the speaker there, I don't remember what he was talking about. I, I don't remember anything, but the Holy Spirit greatly convicted me of sin in my life at that point in time. I remember breaking down, just crying uh, in the seat of, of sin that was in my life and my recognition that I needed, I needed Jesus to save me. Um, and so at that point in time, I asked Christ to be my Savior. So I asked him to come into my life, and then I asked him to be, a, be my Savior uh, as a sophomore in high school. Now, I wish I could say that everything was instantly changed, that it was perfect, uh, but it wasn't so. The, the sin that I had been convicted of so, so much uh, was something that had entangled me uh, for about a year prior, and, and it was pornography. Um, it was at this point in time in my life that I, I started about a six-year battle uh, against that sin. And I bring this up because until hearing Ben speak about it, uh, speaking about sexual sin uh, three, four, six months ago, a while back, I, I can't recall a time from the pulpit that I've ever heard specifics brought out about uh, this sin in our culture. It's not talked about really in our church. It wasn't talked about in my family. On occasion, it gets talked about in youth group. Um, but it's, it's a big sin that entangles so much of our culture. Um, it's, it's real. It's, it is sin. But I'm here again to testify to the fact that Christ has the power to overcome it. So I went through my high school years, um, still going to church. Uh, I'd asked Christ to be my savior. Not a lot changed until I got to college. College was an extremely pivotal time in my life. And it's funny how you can look back at different, different seasons of your life and you can see how some key decisions that you made, uh, really point the direction of your life. And, and college was, was some of that, or there were some key decisions made in my college years. One of those, uh, key decisions was attending a Bible study, um, that was led by a common man uh, who loved Jesus. He, to my knowledge, had not gone to seminary. Um, he was a chiropractor, but he loved college guys. That's right, Adam, you can smile, that's your dad. He, he became a mentor 
uh, a teacher and a friend um, that that poured his life into me and a dozen other guys for four years. Every Thursday night, he would he would buy us pizza. He would share the Bible with us. Um, and so that was a huge, huge decision in my life to attend that Bible study. Just go look back, and I know God can do a lot of things with without our actions. Um, but that was a key one in my life. Of man, I don't know where I'd be if I'd have said no, thanks. I'm I'm all right. Because all around me in college there was there was sexual sin. Um, I had roommates engaged in pornography. There's posters in the guys' dorms. Um, I knew guys across the hall that were sleeping with their girlfriends. The wellness center, you go to work out, they, they hand out condoms there. It, sexual sin is all around you in college. Those of you who are sending your kids off to college, it's, it's real. I don't think you could put a shroud around them and protect them forever. So if there's an encouragement I can give out to you, it's talk to them. Make them aware of, of the power of Christ to overcome. Um, I was so thankful that Ryan was not, who's the, the, the leader, uh, Adam's dad. He was not oblivious to this. He walked around handing out these flyers, uh, handing out invitations to come to a Bible study, meeting people where they're at. But I remember him saying one time that there's a difference between practicing sin and struggling with sin. When someone practices sin, there's no desire to change. There's no grief. There's no uh, remorse. But when you claim Christ and you are struggling with sin, and there's this conviction, this, I do not want this anymore. So be thankful, because that's the Holy Spirit warring for you. Um, it's, not a, it's not a war of flesh and blood. It's, it's against spiritual powers and dominion and darkness. Um, Romans 7. I read this a lot in college. Romans 7, 14 through 25. It says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And Paul gets into the do's and do nots, so I hope I say this right. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do this, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And this is the exclamation. This is my testifying. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Um, I've shared this. I want to illustrate this part of my life, that this, this battle that I was part of. Um, in college, it's, it's all around me. I wanted to throw it off. I wanted to, to be free. Christ was in me. He was doing a good work. Um, but I was struggling. I was struggling deeply. One of those second key decisions that I made in college was the decision to come to Calvary. Uh, I remember it was, it was uh, the winter of 2003. Um, I think that's right, 2002, 2003. I met uh, Lenny and Kathy Joe Lukey. They were teaching college Sunday school at the time and just clicked. And ended up leading to a summer job. Um, 
which ended up leading to a, a girlfriend. Some might joke that it was an arranged marriage that we had, but <laughs> close. But meeting Katie was so valuable in my life. God has used her so much. Um, I remember those first months she challenged me. Uh, she encouraged me. She intimidated me. A, a girl who had gone to, or was going to uh, Bible college, she knew her Bible well, and man, I was intimidated by her. Um, and so when I met her, I knew that this battle with sin, it needed to be finished. I, I needed to decide who was going to win uh, or, or allow Christ to win this battle uh, if I wanted to have a relationship with Katie. God put some resources into my life. Um, one of them, Family Life Today. I don't know if anybody, I know some people here know Family Life Today. Fantastic ministry, fantastic real-life resources. Um, but most importantly, God put a, a deep, deep desire for himself within me. Um, he gave me a hunger for him and for his word. And I, I don't know really how to describe this other than to kick sin out, there's got to be something that replaces it. Leave it at that. So December of 2003, I'm in the middle of, of this Bible study with Ryan. God's doing a ton of work in my life. Uh, Katie's off in another country. And, and I just, it clicked with me. Christ was my Savior, but I hadn't given him complete lordship of all aspects of my life. And I remember that December saying, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord over every aspect of my life. Um, and I can say that he, he set a captive free. Um, when I, when I asked him to be my complete Lord, um, my story goes on, but I, I, I want to close with a, an illustration or a, a story of how I have seen God at work in my life uh, since then. Katie and I took a trip uh, about 10 years ago now to Africa. We, we both felt called to serve the Lord with our gifts in Africa, reaching, reaching people there. And so we spent about a month in Uganda and Rwanda. And after about a week, we were both struggling with being there and and thinking, I don't think God really called us to be here full time. I know he called us to go there that time. So thankful we did. Um, but I remember one time we got to see how God cares for us uh, when we follow him. It doesn't always turn out like this, but this was very important, very neat for me to see. We had taken a trip uh, to the northern part of Uganda, and it was about a 10-hour bus ride chickens next to you and salted bales of fish and very different from our American culture. We spent four days uh, with the, the people of, of Gala, Uganda, and visiting how they lived and, and seeing the agriculture that they do. Um, and our time up there was at a close and we got on the bus. We had a cell phone that our, the missionary we were staying with had, had given us. And I remember we're sitting on the bus, and she calls us and says, I just want you to know that the apartment that you were staying in has been broken into. I don't know what's been, what's happened, what's been taken, but things have clearly been gone through. And so we're going, well, this isn't good. We left our passports there. We left our plane tickets there. We left our extra cash there. Uh, pretty much everything that you need to get out of a country back into the U.S. we had left there. And so we take this 10-hour trip back down and, and are praying. Uh, we got back there. Um, the, the, theft, the thieves had gone through our cupboards in the kitchen and taken out our food. They had gone into the freezer and pulled out ice cream um, as well as some other things. They had gone through our, our duffel bags. We were bringing things for the Bennetts uh, in Rwanda. They would pulled out those gifts. They'd, got, they'd made their way into the bedroom and they had pulled out or, or pulled out our clothes and things were kind of a strew. And there was one dresser there that was four drawers on each side. 
they had pulled out every drawer on the left side. Sorry, this is your left. And on the right side, they had pulled out the bottom three drawers. But wouldn't you know, just coincidentally, that top right drawer was where our money, our passports, our airline tickets, where everything was at. That drawer had remained closed. When I saw that, I was overjoyed knowing without a shadow of my of doubt that our God watched over us, that he was there to, pr to protect us. Such a huge blessing. Um, and we left that trip going, God has called us to be involved where we were at. He called me specifically, put a burden to, to reach out to the guys around me, um, to help them grow up in the faith. And so I, I, I feel like that was the beginning or, or another step of that good work that God was doing within me. Um, as of late, he's been calling on me to, to persevere, to, to keep on doing that good work that he's put in front of me. Don't grow weary of doing good. So, again, I'm going to close with Philippians 1.6. It says, being confident of this. When I started, I didn't read that part because I wasn't confident of that early in my faith. But now, seeing what God has done in my life, a lot of other things. It's been an hour up here sharing what he has done in my life. But I am confident that he who began a good work in you and in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. My name is Aaron Romaine. Um, initially, I was going to say... Good morning. I'm Aaron Romaine. I am now an elder here at Calvary Church in Village Green. But my wife pointed out that I'm not quite an elder yet, so a lot is hinging on my testimony today. <laughs> so I'd like to say that uh, I came to Calvary as, uh, as a Christian, but the truth of the matter is I didn't. Uh, my wife and I came here in uh, 2000 uh, as we were looking for a church when she moved into town here. And uh, we came to Calvary and met uh, Pastor Hank, and I enjoyed listening to what he had to say. So to kind of go back into, well, what drove me to be a, a Christian, we have to kind of go back a little bit. So I grew up in Ottawa, Minnesota, a small town about 35, 40 minutes to the east of here. And I grew up in a, in a family where uh, my mother had grown up in, as a Lutheran. Um, my dad really didn't have any religious background whatsoever. Um, my mom was a bartender, and my dad was an Overlook Road uh, truck driver. So needless to say, um, my mom is what pushed me to to want to go to church. So when she wasn't able to go to church, our neighbors uh, down the road, uh, which since we live in rural, uh, small town, uh, down the road was about a mile down the road, uh, they would pick me up, bring me to church, uh, go to VBS, um, and then eventually through uh, junior high, I would go to um, uh, to uh, confirmation classes and uh, be confirmed in the Lutheran Church, became a, a member of our Lutheran Church. However, to say, we didn't really have a, a great Christian background in our, in, our, in our home. We didn't have anything to reinforce us to say, all right, this is right, this is wrong. And so, needless to say, I knew the stories. I knew uh, Daniel in the lion's den. I knew what Moses, who Moses was. I knew all the stories. I knew how everything interacted in the Bible. I knew the history of the Bible. But I never really understood what it all meant. So then when I graduated high school and went on to college, uh, I became a musician. I played saxophone. So needless to say, it's kind of ironic that I played drums in church all the day long, but I'm a, actually a sax player. So uh, when I went to college and became a saxophone musician, um, I really became in, engulfed in uh, that musician-style life. Um, needless to say, it's kind of a, a thankless, pointless life, but that's really what I, what I grew up in, um, in that college setting, uh, to the point where um, this was a, a great book, but that's all it was, that uh, we have Christians 
we have Lutherans, we have uh, Catholics, we have all of these these different religions claiming that the Bible is is the Bible, yet no one got along. And so to me, it's like, well, maybe there's just one God. Maybe there isn't a Jesus. Maybe there isn't this. And so for a number of years, I would argue, thinking that I was uh, the smartest person in the world, that there isn't a Jesus, there isn't a God, there isn't a Savior. There's just this one entity that created something that allowed us to, to grow, for us to be here. And so I lived that life. I lived that life for several years, quite content. Didn't think anything else mattered. And then, of course, until I met my, my now wife. So it seems like uh, my testimony and Aaron's testimony kind of goes hand in hand. So it seems behind uh, every mediocre male is a great female. <laughs> so, But I am going to say uh, that's definitely true in my life. Because if it wasn't for Trish, we probably wouldn't have made that journey to Calvary here back in 2000, almost 17 years ago. I wouldn't have met Pastor Hank. I wouldn't have asked Trish to marry me. And... I wouldn't have had to have that faithful conversation with uh, Pastor Hank saying, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And my answer was no. So Hank pretty much said, well, if that's the case, I, I, I can't marry you. However, I'm not going to give up on you. And so then he asked me a number of other questions. Like, well, do you believe this? And of course I do. I believe that everything in here was correct, was uh, historically accurate. So, yeah, I believe that. He would ask me another question about the Bible. Yeah, I believe that. He asked me another question. Yeah, I believe that. So then he asked me the all-important question, well, if you believe all of these things, how can you not believe that Jesus died for your sins? I didn't have a smart, intelligent answer for that. And so in my mind, Hank was exactly right. And so at that point, I professed that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And from that point, I started that journey of learning a little bit more about what Jesus does in my life or how he can, he can work in my life. And then consequently, uh, Trish and I got married. Uh, Hank gave the, I think at that point, we had gone to three other weddings. Uh, one was a Catholic wedding that lasted about an hour and a half long. Ours, I think at that time, was the shortest wedding ceremony that we had. Um, my coworkers happened to be five minutes late for our wedding, and they actually missed the entire service. <laughs> so it was, it, was a, it was a great day. It started out cloudy, and then it's, the sun came out. It, it was great. However, it was our honeymoon a couple of years later when I learned what the power of Jesus really was. So that year I worked at a bicycle shop. Consequently, I still work at a bike shop. Uh, all my life I've worked at a bike shop, up until a small little portion of my story, which I'll get to in a second. Um, so that year we had a great year, and we decided, well, if we have a record-selling year, all the full-time staff is going to go to Mexico, and we are going to climb Pico de Orizaba, which is the third highest peak in North America. It's an unactivated volcano. Great climb. So we had our record selling year. So the team and I went down to Mexico City a week before Trish to, uh, to climb this, this mountain. Now the mountain, third highest in North America. So it makes things, sorry Ben, things in Colorado is pretty small. As a matter of fact, the highest peak in Colorado is the same altitude as base camp at this, uh, at this mountain, which is 14,000 feet. So we get to Mexico, we, we get out to this mountain, we see this, uh, we, we stay in this, this little villa that has this window, we have this great view of the peak, and it's like, oh, this is fantastic, this is going to be great. So we start on our trek, uh, we get to, uh, we hike to base camp on day one. So our plan is day one, base camp, then we bring our tents and gear up to our high base camp, which is at 16,000 feet, and then day three, we summit the mountain, which is at 18,800 feet. And then we're off the mountain, we go home, and I meet Trish in Mexico City. So, day one, we get to, uh, 
to the base camp, which is this stone mountain hut that holds about 20 different mountaineers. Um, we get there, say hi to everybody. There's a, there's a group from Boston that's there. There's a group from, um, Durango or Boulder, Colorado that's there. I mean, there's, there's people from all over the, the world, all over the, the country there. And so, uh, we drop off our stuff, grab our tent, hike up another 2,000 feet up to 16,000 feet, drop our tent, come back down to base camp, have a meal, and then we sit down and we, uh, we take a, we, we, we rest. I mean, it's been a long day, so we sleep. Wake up at 6 o'clock the next morning, huge snowstorm. There wasn't an ounce of snow on a trail. 120 mile an hour straight winds, three to four feet of snow on a trail. It, 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 was, a, it was an all-out blizzard. Um, we decided, well, we'll wait it out. We've got a couple of days. We're, we're fine. So we, we wait the next night. After the next night, um, we, we don't see our uh, Durango or our uh, Boulder Cup, our uh, climbing team back yet, because they decided to, to veer out. Um, we never saw them again. Well, not until we got back to the town. They had actually gone down the wrong side of the mountain because they couldn't see anything. So we decided to wait out that, that third day. And the third day was a breaking day. If, if, the, if the weather doesn't break this day, there is no way we're going to be able to climb this mountain. Third day, crystal clear. Perfect. Make it up to base, or to, to high camp at 16,000 feet, dig out our tent, set up our tent, get ready to, to, to buckle down for the evening because we've got to get up at 3 a.m. the next morning. So that way there, from, uh, from 3 to uh, noon, we'll be at the top of this mountain. We'll be able to summit this mountain. It'll be fantastic. Well, about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, all of a sudden winds start coming back up again. And strong winds. Strong enough where we have to go outside, we have to anchor the tent down, We've got to put uh, anchors in the inside of the tent, and well, we're on the side of a mountain. Um, the wind's pushing us off the side of the mountain to a 150-foot sheer drop. And it's at that time that I close my eyes and I start praying, because I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought for sure we were just going to be blown off the side of that and a calm came over me. I fell asleep, woke up at 3 a.m., crystal clear, could see every star in, in the sky. So we summited, came back down, and on the hike down, I decided not only is Jesus in my mind, he's in my heart. He's watching over us, he's rejecting us. And that's also when I decided, you know, now I'm married. I've got this beautiful wife. I work in a bike shop. What am I going to do now with my life? And so that's when I decided, it's time to leave the bike shop. It's time to go back to school. It's time to become a music teacher. And that's exactly what I did. So, and it's, it was a great process. It was a great direction for me. Uh, because at that time... That's when Mr. Lenny Lukey approached Trish and myself and said, Hey, you're two young, veering people. I'm guessing you want to have children someday. You should come work with me and, uh, and be a youth group leader. And it was fantastic because um, we, became, uh, we became leaders, uh, co-leaders. Uh, it, it was a great gig for us because, uh, you know, we didn't know anything about leading kids. Um, so we, here we already have someone who is, is doing all the work for us. We just have to show up and, and play games and, and, and do all that kind of stuff. And so um, it, it was fantastic. However, it was really great for me because even though I knew the stories in the book, I really didn't know how to apply that to my life. And so youth group was selfishly a great thing for me. Just like Aaron had um, this, uh, this men's study group at church, I had youth group. And, and granted, it was kind of baby steps, but for me, it was perfect. It was fantastic. And now, it's it's awesome because I see so many of the, the youth that used to be in our group now still in our congregation, now married, now have kids. Fantastic. It's, it's, it's a great thing. And so, it, 
the spirit grew in me and, and, and knowledge grew in me and, 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 a, and a thirst to, to want to know more and how that works in my life grew in me. And I didn't realize how much it would grow in me until we had our, started having our children. I remember our first child, Naya, she was born my first year teaching in Barnesville. And it was, it was a, a great and laborious and horrible thing all at the same time. So Naya, of course, everything was going great. She was a very, I suppose you could say a rambunctious child. Um, you'd poke Trish's belly and she'd kick right back. I mean, she, she had a, a mind of her own. And everything was going great up until uh, the, the, the time where she was supposed to be delivered. Well, then she decided to flip and she, she came sunny side up. That's what they say, face up. Uh, so the delivery process was a just a very strenuous, very, very emotional, very, very tough process. Um, but just being able to see her and see her face was such a miracle. And that's when I fell in love with her and fell in love with my wife again and fell in love with Jesus all over again and vowed at that time that no matter what, Jesus was going to be a part of our family from that point on, period. And then a few years later, we had our second son, Dylan. And Dylan was, was a miracle child. We just, there were so many times, even during uh, the pregnancy period, where Trish had this feeling that so, something's going to be wrong, something's not right. And then we had Dylan. He was just all smiles, completely opposite of Naya. So Naya was, we'd have to hold her and, and rock her to sleep, and she she was just so, so whiny. <laughs> but in a good way, just not at that time. Where, where Dylan was so opposite. He was just so happy-go-lucky, so... So carefree. And I remember that year when I was at Shields, my second year at Shields, I decided to, to leave teaching and, and be, a, be a team member at Shields. So it was my second, uh, I suppose my yeah, second spring at Shields, I decided I want to get into, into shape. And so I started uh, training for the Fargo Half Marathon, my first half marathon. Um, never run before. The, the furthest I'd ever run was 5K. And so half marathon to me was very ambitious. So I trained and trained and trained and trained and trained and trained and trained. And I remember the week prior to uh, the Fargo Half Marathon, it happened to be a Tuesday. And the reason why I remember that is because Tuesday nights I always work late. And so I get to work at noon, work late. And so I dropped Dylan off at uh, daycare and went for a morning run. Got ready, went to work, all was normal until about uh, 12.30. When I got a phone call um, from the, uh, the police saying, um, Dylan's been struggling breathing, and so we need to, uh, to have you come to the hospital. And uh, went to the hospital and had uh, someone greet me, asking, is there family members you would like to, uh, to meet or to, to have meet you here? And, and at, at that time, I'm just like, well, why? Because he's, he's struggling breathing. Like, he's sick, but what's the big deal? Uh, until I realized the, uh, the complexity and the seriousness of the, uh, of the the problem. And here, um, Dylan had uh, gotten a hold of something that um, reacted poorly with him, and we had lost Dylan. And um, not only do we have Dylan in our minds all the time, but um, at that time, I was just so overwhelmed with, with love from our congregation. And not only that, but love from, from my Lord. And that's when uh, Proverbs, and I, and I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget, and I didn't, but Proverbs 3, 5 became uh, a family model. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. And um, we got a little, I want to say a shrine, but uh, a, a shelving setup of frogs fully rely on God. And, and that is now our, our family theme, fully rely on God. And I say this because it's also part of my journey. But, you know, my journey started with accepting Christ in my mind. Then accepting Christ in my heart. And now accepting Christ in our life. 
And if it had not been for Christ in our lives, with that vow when Naya was born, that no matter what, Jesus is going to be a part of our life, we would have a hard time. And so that's my journey. I would like, if we could, open up our Bibles to Proverbs 3. In the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 528. I'm contemplating letting CJ in the back know about this and put it up on the, on the screen. But I think actually seeing printed word in the Bible and opening it up to that means a lot more. And I'd like to read Proverbs 3, 1 through verse 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your head. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Thanks, guys. Now I'm really loud, and I've got a mic strapped to my face, so moving back doesn't help. I hope you've been edified by hearing two men that we have confirmed as elders in the church. I'll tell you, we've confirmed them as the elders met through the last several months. The process goes like this. You look in your congregation, and you look for men who are shepherding. You don't call somebody to be an elder. You confirm them to be an elder. That's the process of Scripture. Uh, we didn't look at these guys and say, you know what, let's call them and see if they'll do these things. So looking at their lives and say, you know what, they're doing these things. Let's call them what, they're, what they are. And so I'm absolutely elated for the men that serve as elders in this church. And we just put a guy in his 30s and a guy in his 40s on our elder board. Don't for a second think we're trying to make our elder board younger. An elder board, when rightly put together in a church, ought to have guys in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even in their 90s for us to function well. It's a beautiful thing to watch wise men lead and discern in a church and to shepherd a body. This is a, a group of men who've been put together not to make business decisions, but to shepherd this body well. And so as we step into this next section, I want you to keep that in mind because elders shepherd the body. I want to call all of our elders forward, literally. If you guys would come stand on the floor in front of me, these are our elders, given to us by God to lead us, to shepherd us, and to point us to Christ. In ordaining them as our elders, I want to ask them some questions. They will now vow to you, and then I'll ask you a question in response. Gentlemen, do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith of this church contains the truth taught in the Holy Scriptures? Do you promise 
that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in our statement of faith, that you will make of your own initiative, make it known to the other elders the change which is taken in your views. Do you subscribe to the government and the discipline of Calvary Church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? Have you been convinced, as far as you know of your own heart, to accept the office of elder from love of God and sincere desire to promote His glory in the gospel of His Son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and the peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all of your duties as an elder, whether private or public, and to strive by the grace of God to live out your calling of the gospel before this congregation? And are you now willing to take responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the church, to shepherd the body, to devote yourself to prayer, to the ministry of the word, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Calvary Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ be blessed. Calvary, this is your elders. You should know, according to the scriptures, that elders don't wield individual power. They do as a group. That there is a spiritual collection here that is awesome. And God gives elders to a church to shepherd them, to come alongside them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to remind them of truth, to rebuke them when they're in sin. That is the job of these men given in the church by the New Testament. So church, I ask you this. If you would now stand. You would find reading through 1 Timothy that elders are appointed in the church, but they're confirmed by the body. Just as three weeks ago, you confirmed them physically, we now confirm them spiritually. So I ask you this question to the congregation. Do you, the members of Calvary Church, acknowledge and publicly affirm these men as your elders? Now I'm going to ask, this is where I start getting a little charismatic on you, if, if these guys will spread out into the congregation, go down the aisles, and if you would come and put your hands on them. I, I say that because the, cong- the Bible clearly says that they were confirmed by the laying on of hands. These aren't my hands that lay on these guys. It's the body's hands. So put a hand on somebody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love this church. You love Calvary. And in doing so, God, you have provided spiritual gifts to us. Father, your word confirms that every spiritual gift that is necessary for this body, you have provided And so we trust that, Lord. Every person in this room has gifts that you've given them to exhort and to edify the body. Father, we're all called to use them. And Father, your scripture confirms that there are some men that you give the gift of eldership to. And so, Father, these men who you have called to serve as elders, Father, these men who have chosen to submit themselves to you, to take on a spiritual responsibility, a responsibility, Father, that your word confirms that they will be held accountable for in eternity in, in, in your word. Father, thank you that they've submitted themselves to that. I pray, Father, that in this year and the coming years, you would use them to, to lead us, to guide us, to shepherd us well, to appoint all of us individually and corporately to your Son. Father, that we would grow in our knowledge of Him, that we would grow in our application of His truths. Father, that we would make You known everywhere. Father, thank You so much for these men that You have raised up amongst us. Father, we worship You for that. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.
Now, by means of commissioning and benediction, which tells you we're coming to an end. I want to read for you 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. If you study 1 Peter, you'd find that there's a two strong exhortations here. The first to the elders, the second to the congregation. That's why we end here. 1 Peter 5, 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the gospel that is going to be revealed. Here's your exhortation, elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You come to verse 5, there's an exhortation to the church. It does say, likewise, you who are younger. But please do not understand that an elder is someone who is old and a younger is somebody who is younger. That's actually not what the text is saying here. It's confirming elders as in leadership. And when it gets to these younger statements, it's saying that those of you in the church, likewise, you who are younger, Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Elders, shepherd well. Church, be subject to your elders. Let me pray and we'll be done. Gracious God, thank you for this gathering where we have confirmed elders. Father, we've read from your word all that you have for them, the calling that you have given them. Father, we've laid hands on them. We've prayed over them. Father, they have confirmed by word of mouth, Father, that they were submitting themselves to your calling. And Father, we pray that you would use them to do that. And that as a church, Father, you would bless us with a greater knowledge and understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.